Hello, and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. This podcast tries to shine some light into that darkness. We're not experts and we're not therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and who are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. Today's part two of the documentary, Not Alone. And it highlights teens sharing their experiences and really putting their raw emotions and words out there for us to start to understand um, exactly what it feels like, what we should be noticing, what the reality of having your brain filled with these thoughts. They're, they're, they're making it real for us. They're making it real, both teenage depression and suicidal ideation, yes. And then we will also, as a second part of this, talk about the effects of social media, which we thought this was a good opportunity to bring in for the discussion as well. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, website had this great comment. You can make a difference for yourself and others by sharing your experience and perspective. There are all sorts of things you know that others want to know. You are not alone. Let others know they're not alone either. And with that, we dive into some of the tough interviews from the appropriately named Not Alone documentary at a point where teens describe their darkest moments. All the interviews you're about to hear are from the film. Suicide for me was like a way for people to like hear me. I think that happens for a lot of kids is they feel misunderstood or they feel isolated and alone, maybe based on something they've done or just depression in general and feeling like they can't talk to anyone about it. And it's, I mean, it is a cry for help in some ways. It's a, the biggest cry for help. Basically what was going through my head was just a whole lot of negative thinking. You're a failure. You've got no one. Why stick around? All of a sudden, this wave just hits me, and it's just like, wow, I really could. I could, couldn't I? I could do it. I was really single-minded that day. I was set. From the moment I got off the school bus, I was ready to just give up my life. It is so hard to hear those stories and to understand how despairing, alone, and hurt those kids felt. As mothers and humans, it breaks our hearts. But if we just shared the how they got better part, we'd run the risk of someone listening and thinking, yeah, well, they weren't as depressed as I am. They don't really understand. They do. And they got help. When I woke up in the ICU, I was... I was really sad. I was, I saw my parents in the corner of the room and I blinked for a couple seconds and then I just, I started crying. You know, I was like, whoa, I almost died. You know, I was, I almost wasn't here. I'd known for a while that I should really say something because I couldn't 
like stop these feelings on my own. One night, me and my mom were walking our dog, and it was over the summer, and I just got up the courage to just say, like, I don't, I think I need some help. So I reached out for help because I just decided someone should be able to help me. Like, this is not something I should have to go through alone, so I'll give it a shot. At first, it's awkward. Um, it's, you can't say it's not. Like, sitting here and telling someone something that is so rooted in you and, like, personal to you is, like, the hardest thing ever. But after a while, you just feel so much lighter. It's, like, this, like, huge relief to finally, like, be able to, like, sit there and, like, tell someone how you feel and, like, get help for it rather than constantly, like, drowning yourself. It's really good to hear someone say, I'm going to try to understand and I'm going to listen to you. Therapy helps some, meds others, plus finding and connecting with things that bring joy and purpose to life. I mean, you talk about how you got better. Like, what was some of the things that made you get better? And what are some of the things that you use now? Got involved in marching band. Sounds really, really dorky and geeky and stuff, but it gave me, like, a team. Like, gave me a really good group of friends that were kind of just as dorky and geeky as I was. So I think finding something that you feel like this is why I was born, this is what I was like meant to do, really like brought me out of like this hole that I had dug myself in. I think connecting with my spiritual self was really what um, started to make things go uphill for me. That was a big part in me coming out. Through meditation, I got more connected with my emotions and I was more able to process a lot of thoughts and feelings that were going on in my head just by pausing from life almost, sitting down and just breathing in and out and just experiencing the present moment. I love the outdoors. It's something I've always loved. It's just the sense of timelessness. I just love everything about it, even, you know, just the, the, the sense of peace. And from that place, they can now not only envision but plan for and look forward to futures they once didn't expect to have. It's crazy because just a short while ago, I was picturing me not even being here, and now I have like this whole plan of how I want to live my life. I want to be on Survivor, like the reality show or something. I just want to do like crazy things, and I want to go to college, and I want to have kids and get married, and now I can like aspire to those things and work for them because... I'm in a place where I can do that. The, actually, I think the most important thing to me right now is my future. I know exactly what I want to do. Um, yeah, I'm going to go to Davis and get a master's in biology, and I'm going to do all this stuff and rent an apartment and, like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all fantasies, and but it makes me feel really happy to know that I'm going to be something someday, and I'm going to make a difference. Oh, just to hear that shift from utter despair to hope to having a plan for the future and being enthusiastic and excited. And I I mean, just I'm covered with goosebumps when I I hear her say that. Me too. Me too. And everybody in it, you know, I don't care if you're 14 or, you know, 114, in it, you can't imagine that there is an out and a light and a future and all of it. And it's like, Trust us. Trust them. You know, there is. Trust somebody. 
And in truth, maybe you aren't able to help yourself get out and you have to just right. ask for help. Ask for help. And and frankly, like everything else in life, maybe that first person you ask isn't your answer. Mm-hmm. Ask again. Ask again. Ask somebody else. Ask a third and a fourth if yep. you've got to because yep. you can get you've to got this to. other side. Because you've got to. You can't always be your own answer. Right. And I would say from personal experience, you know, this is one of those times. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to just segue here and talk a little bit about social media, Bridget. We researched that connection between teens' mental health and social media, and I believe, as a mother of two teens, that they're fused. Um, CNN recently reported on how social media platforms impact health and well-being, issues like anxiety, depression, self-identity, body image. And a survey from the Royal Society of Public Health in the UK of almost 1,500 young people ages 14 to 24 concluded Instagram is the most detrimental social networking app for young people's mental health, followed closely by Snapchat. Here's a quote from that report. Because platforms like Instagram and Facebook present highly curated versions of the people we know and the world around us, it's easy for our perspective of reality to become distorted. We spoke with Kiki Gaucher, the documentary producer, and Jacqueline Mineta, who had the idea for the film and conducted interviews about the issue, which they addressed in the documentary as well. And one of the things that Jacqueline investigated, which I never would have thought of because it wasn't part of my high school world, was just how social media was amping up the pressure on kids to be perfect, to feel perfect, um, and, to, and to constantly be out there. Like, it's not great if you kind of want to pull the covers over your head if you have to be looking at everybody else's social media, seeing that they're having a great time. Yeah. And and they even all acknowledged that they knew that these were curated, that, that curates their what, the, everything that they put up. But in spite of that, it doesn't stop you from feeling bad that, you know, you're sitting home alone and there's a party going on down the street. And from some of the teens in the film. I mean, we all go about our days smiling and posting pictures on Instagram, everyone's smiling, happy, and it's so one-sided. Like, you have no idea what's going on beyond that. We all have this image we put up on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat. We're smiling, laughing in every shot. We're doing this, we're going here. Hanging out with these people. And our lives look perfect. Social media actually did have a really negative impact in my life. There was just a group message with a lot of guys that were from my middle school, and somehow it the conversation started going towards me, and people were calling me gay, and, and when I, I wasn't out yet, you know, they were just making assumptions, but basically to cut me down, they were calling me gay or fag or whatever, and a lot of negative stuff just came, was amplified over Facebook. So I definitely think uh, social media has a role to play in uh, depression and also in just name-calling and unhealthy communication. Someone can say anything to you on social media and they're not going to see you cry. A major point of anxiety for me was social media. The thing about social media is there's such expectations around it. Like, if you don't have 
this amount of followers or this amount of friends on Facebook or I didn't get this many likes on my photo. There's just like, you just, you internalize it and you think, wow, that means maybe I'm not good enough and these people don't care. And I think it's psychologically damaging to people sometimes because it's just hard because you feel so alone with that. According to an article by Jean Twenge, who's been researching generational differences for 25 years, the twin rise of the smartphone and social media has put an entire generation on what she calls the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Twenge writes, There is compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. Again, here's Jacqueline. I mean, I could make a whole other film about social media and um, the impact that it's having today on teens, but social media can be such a positive influence and also negative influence. If you're spending hours on social media and you are not happy or you are feeling depressed, put it away because it's only going to make it worse. It's hard. It makes it, there's a lot of statistics out there regarding um, how how long you are on social media or how long you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and your, ha- and your happiest level. We're going to link to the Atlantic article we're quoting from, but according to the author, extensive research makes clear, quote, the more time teens spend looking at screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. Eighth graders who are heavy users of social media increase their risk of depression by 27% while those who play sports, go to religious services, or even do homework more than the average teen, cut their risk significantly. At the very least, it seems like something that should be on our radar. That and the many other topics and perspectives covered in Not Alone and the other sources we've mentioned in our focus on suicide prevention this month. Um, I think this film is so great, but it doesn't stand by itself. It's the conversation that comes after watching the film. Um, It's the it's the encouragement of teens, of teens to reach out to their counselors, to their friends, to their parents. One of the things we put in the curriculum is that the, the school, the teachers give the kids this toolkit saying, these are all of your resources locally. Who, who in your neighborhood, who in your little world can you reach out to? And really having them say, oh, I, I can identify this or that teacher. I can identify my friend's mother. Um, I can talk to my own parents so that so they kind of have this toolkit when they're done saying, well, I am not alone in this and I have all these resources. And one last excerpt from the documentary. Like teenagers, friends are going to be the first one to notice if something's different or if something's not right. Like they should take action and like speak up because they might just save someone's life. If you see even one warning sign, like reckless behavior, personality changes, changes in sleep, physical pain, or substance abuse, step in or speak up. Powerful, powerful documentary. And, you know, we appreciate everybody who listened that long because this is longer than our usual episodes, but it is also a critically important topic. And if teens can get the help and support they need and develop the self-understanding that they have an illness they'll need to learn to manage, they will be so much better prepared in life than if they go into adulthood without that understanding or care plan. And I find as a mother of two teens that 
they don't put down their devices. You know, generally speaking, I think they're actually addicted to them. They're afraid they're going to miss out on something socially important. It negatively impacts their sleep. So at our house, we take the kids' phones away at 9 o'clock at night. And then they don't have to have that restraint because, frankly, they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Good that's idea. worked for us. They didn't have them when my kids were little. I'm so glad. Yeah. And, you know, maybe everybody else knows what that word curated means, but I didn't. And it's it's that it's fabricated. You know, it's filtered. It's photoshopped. It's, you know, it's, it's only a, the best. It's a, it's only the best. Yeah, you it's don't a put up a picture reality. of yourself looking, you know, whatever, bad, looking exactly. uh, alone, looking uh, like you're not having fun. You, you put up the best of the best. Exactly. You know? So it's this polished, shiny view of your life when, when in reality we all have a whole bunch of other sides, too. Exactly. So we're all comparing ourselves to a distorted reality that isn't even real. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't you can't win. So we will be taking the month of October to focus on fundraising so that we can continue production of these podcasts. And yes, if you'd like to support our mission, we have a donate button on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com, or on our Facebook page. So hopefully we'll be back in November with some new episodes. But for the month of October, we're going to highlight some of our favorite episodes. And we will be linking to the opportunities to watch Not Alone, which we are most grateful to have been able to profile in the last two episodes, and to that Atlantic article, which we think is really important. Be well. We hope that our podcasts bring about a little more understanding or help people articulate their experience of depression a little more. And thanks to each and every person who's digging deep and finding the words and finding the courage to give voice to depression. And you can find our podcasts on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com, as well as on iTunes, where we hope you will subscribe, rate, and respectfully comment. And please remember, if you're hurting, speak up. If someone else is hurting, listen up.